0: Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So the past few weeks have been incredibly interesting all over the world. I'm sure um, you've heard tons and tons of news surrounding the Ukraine and Russia uh, about what's all going on over there. In my previous episode, I talked a little bit about Russia potentially using its fuel sources as a sort of weapon in war um, to influence how things go. Um, For a large part, that's roughly been true. Um, I think initially when the war war started, there um, a Russian gas company, uh, energy oil company, uh, Rosneft and Gazprom, uh, slowed flows into Ukraine, which then um, really is kind of the Nexus of a lot of pipelines that flow into the rest of the EU. Um, they slowed flows of their products into those pipelines. And then, but more recently, they've actually picked up, um, production into, or or the moving of oil and oil products into the EU. Um, so that's been awfully interesting to see. Um, there's been so much news going around, um, it's almost been hard to even refine what I wanted to talk about because there's just so much to talk about. So um, to kind of catch up over the last week or so, there's been a lot of developments uh, within the energy market. Um, so Russia is a major oil producer. They're part of OPEC+. Plus. They produce a substantial amount of oil that's uh, sold onto world markets, which I'll get into a little bit later. I'm um, a more U.S. focus, so WTI, um, the U.S. general gauge for oil prices, is currently at 121 uh, per barrel, $121 per barrel. Um, much, much higher than the negative prices that we saw back in April of 2020, um, even just a month or two ago. Uh, much, much higher since then. Um, and high oil prices really aren't a good thing, I've heard from uh, are a good thing for oil companies. Uh, of course, oil companies make more money um, when oil prices are higher. But at the same time, there's kind of a sweet spot. And I've heard it range from anywhere to 60, 70, 80-ish dollars per barrel, um, where producers stay pretty constrained and don't overproduce. but Everyone make, kind of makes money. Everyone gets their Um, fair share, but when oil prices continue to go higher, it really is hard to hold back whenever the likelihood of making a lot more money uh, in the market by selling their oil products, um, they can make more money off of those. So something to keep in mind there. Natural gas is at $4.78 per mm MMBTU. Um, still quite a bit higher than we've traditionally seen. I've seen prices range for a while now, roughly a little over three dollars, um, all the way up to five dollars per MMBTU. So quite the, quite the run that we've seen there. Um, and natural gas is a lot of how, um, the world runs. Like a lot of, um, heating and AC and electricity is produced from natural gas. Um, so whenever we see, Prices go higher and higher and and with developments in the EU um, and electricity bills have gotten through the roof because prices have gotten so high. And again, with Russia in the mix there, um, you're going to hear me talk a lot about Russia. So um, just keep that in mind. With Russia in the mix um, and, and slowing down the the flow of natural gas into the Ukraine, uh, create causes a lot of problems. And it causes a lot of problems for uh countries all over the world because now a lot of US shipments of natural gas that were intended for Asia over the past month or so have been redirected to Europe for a couple of reasons. One of them being that the EU is short of natural gas, right? So it makes sense to help out our allies there. But also prices being higher there can make more make more money. So rig counts in the US are currently sitting at 650, um, quite a bit higher than a year ago. They're actually up 247 from a year ago in the U.S. And I like to think about rig counts as like if rig counts are going up, that means that more oil companies are producing more oil, um, which then makes its way onto the market. And it makes sense um, because rig counts loosely track, actually pretty strongly track um, where oil prices are at. So oil prices go up, rig counts go up. Down into even negative territory um, back in April 2020, um, prices, you know, or, uh, rig counts go way down. So one thing similarly along these lines is that I've talked about a lot on the show about how public oil and gas companies learned their lesson, so to speak, whenever, um, energy stocks, energy equity started to lag the market. Um, over the past few years and really past decade or so, um, a lot of that had to do with oil companies continuing to produce more and more um, spending beyond their means, raising debt, raising equity, and then not being able to pay that debt um, or pay a dividend to their shareholders. So common theme I've talked about a lot, if you've ever listened to me before is that there's a new discipline within public oil and gas companies of not producing more and more, but returning more cash cash to shareholders and uh, ensuring that they have a strong balance sheet and really well-functioning operations. Uh, So along these same lines, if you're a private oil company, private shale company um, that produces oil and natural gas and other things, uh, we've seen drilling activities start to increase among these private companies and they can do this because they don't have that public light on them. They don't have that, those public or they're not a public company. So they don't have shareholders that they have to either answer to for whatever it might be, either, um, operations concerns or, or the price of their shares are at or ESG concerns or anything. And they can just go ahead and produce as much as they can. And honestly, if I uh, am, am looking to start making money as a uh, oil or natural gas producer, I would probably rather be a private company because it seems like they can increase their drilling without that sort of public backlash, public uh, sort of Limelight that gets shed on those big publicly traded international oil and gas companies. Um, so just kind of keeping that in mind throughout this podcast. So, um, looking at where U.S. oil production is heading, um, the EIA, the energy information administration, uh, in the U.S. has, uh, predicted or projected that like crude oil production in the U.S. could hit 12.6 million barrels per day uh, next year, which is actually a record high for the U.S., um, which is pretty su- substantial considering kind of where we were about a year ago, and where we are, to, are now. And it's almost like this moment where a lot of public figureheads and governments and news agencies have Shed negative light on the oil and gas industry, but now higher production and higher uh, output of oil and its byproducts onto the market is almost being applauded. It's like, hey, we, we, we need you now. Well, we've always needed oil and gas and we will always need oil and gas, but it's sort of this shift and, and I guess how the media or however, however that works, um, into, now we're excited for, for more production and more oil onto the market. So much so that the U.S. Um, is actually releasing 60 million barrels of oil from its strategic reserves. And I believe these strategic reserves were established by the government uh, right around the World War II, or maybe after World War II, um, where the government said, hey, there are times where we might not be able to have um, consistent imports of oil, right? So we're going to build up a reserve of oil, a sort of a brick glass, you know, if needed kind of thing. Like if we need this oil, then we will use it, right? We'll use it for whatever we need to use it for, whether it be, you know, for the people, for the government, whatever that might be. So the U S seeing the current situation that we're in now across the world, where we're facing, um, Demand increases, supply decreases, supply shocks, all kinds of things saying, hey we want to release these this oil onto the market. Well, the funny thing about releasing 60 million barrels of oil onto the market sounds like a lot of oil, which of course it's it's hard for me to wrap my head around how much oil. I mean, if you were to view 60 million barrels, like big giant barrels of oil in a, in a warehouse, it would take up quite a few warehouses but in the grand scheme of things that accounts for just half a day in oil consumption. Like we released that and it supplies oil for half of this oil needs for half a day. Um, So just something to kind of keep in mind there. Not really. I think it's more sort of a sign signifying type move by the government. Of course it, it, you can make an argument that it helps, but I mean, supplying over half a day of oil doesn't really do a whole lot in the grand scheme of things. So shifting gears a little bit more towards where the US and the EU and kind of Russia are kind of in a in a mix here. Um, so there's been plenty of sanctions, um, both economic, government, on people from Russia or particular people from Russia, specifically oligarchs that have been placed uh, on them by the U.S. and the EU. So this ranges from all kinds of things, from companies to stakes in foreign entities, to bank accounts, to access to payments, all kinds of stuff. Um, But in particularly, uh, there's been talks of a, a ban on Russian oil imports. And kind of where this gets interesting is, again, I mentioned earlier that russia is a pretty substantial producer they account for seven percent of daily global demand or seven million barrels per day um which again might not seven percent doesn't sound like that big of a of a um amount right but that is pretty substantial in the grand scheme of things if you just wipe off seven percent of of oil when we're facing supply shortages, not really a good equation there. I'm kind of going along with that um, and with the outlay of all of these sanctions. So there's been quite a bit of big oil companies that have been exiting Russia. Um, the exception, to my knowledge, is Total Energies is the one that has not exited yet, but I'm sure that'll probably happen soon. And this is for a couple of reasons. One of them is that these companies don't want to get uh in the, in the crosshairs of any sanctions? They don't want to be funding uh, Russia, which a lot of their government actually is funded by um, sales of oil through their major oil state-owned oil companies. Um, and also, uh, it's almost like a sort of a call to action not to sort of be in the in, in Russia right now. It's kind of a kind of an interesting little development. Um, and this is definitely going to come at a cost. I mean, you can't just offload billions of dollars of of investment overnight, right? Like it takes time. How does that work? How do you exit a country that is at war, right, with another country? It's just a lot, a lot of things to consider. But um, it's just really interesting to see how this is all playing out. And then also with this Russian oil import ban, it's being talked about quite a bit. Particularly by the U.S., the EU isn't really on board because, again, it's hard for them to be on board whenever they're already facing shortages and they're already facing the likelihood of this ban making those shortages even worse, right? But you think about um, sort of on the company level, there already has been some refiners, refiners, particularly in the U.S., that have stopped purchasing Russian oil and its oil products. Um, again, to not get caught in those crosshairs. So just kind of interesting there. Um, Even to fill this void, there's been talks about other countries sort of stepping in to make this uh, equation work again, this supply-demand equation work again. And Canada has even discussed of increasing oil production in order to meet this uh, demand loss, right? Potentially, if that was to happen. Um, But from what I've gathered is that there's really not enough Canadian export capacity to meet this demand. They don't have any LNG export facilities in Canada. Um, And it would be pretty nice if uh, the Keystone pipeline was a thing at this point, right? If that pipeline that was very, very, very politically divisive, um, you've had People from all sides of the aisle either very for it, very against it for all kinds of reasons. I'm not going to go into all of that, but it would be nice if we had a pipeline that did supply more Canadian oil to the U S because again, a Russian import ban um, for the U S would mean that we're losing about 600,000 barrels per day of Russian crude oil that the U S imports every single day. So something to kind of keep in mind there. Uh, also, there's been talk of how this whole Russian-Ukraine thing plays out with China, right? And there's a whole host of things that we can get into there. Um, but if there were a Russian crude oil import ban um, from the U.S. specifically, I imagine a lot of the slack from um, for Russia that they would be losing on, on sales to the U.S. would probably be diverted to China or other countries in that region who they're uh, more friendly with. I would say. Um, China and Russia have been developing pretty solid infrastructure over quite a few years um, to increase capacity from Russian from Russia oil to, to bring Russian oil to China to fund their economy and do all the rest. So kind of interesting there how that plays out. I've seen some articles talking about China dis- distancing itself from Russia, um, but they're such close geographic neighbors and they've had all kinds of talks over the years about their relationship and all and all that um all the stuff i'm talking about is so dynamic i mean who knows where it could go if there's a russian import ban i mean i could see oil prices shooting way up i mean i wouldn't even consider 150 160 dollars per barrel to be out of the range of possibilities i mean it's even it's crazy to me to even think about that being the price of of oil, and what happens is whenever oil gets to this price, well, then a lot more um, oil companies, um, particular producers, are going to want their companies to be valued at a higher price because now their acreage that wasn't worth as much, their drilling acreage that wasn't worth as much, you know, a couple months ago is now worth way more whenever oil is at you know one twenty, one thirty, etc. So it's just interesting how that's going to kind of play out, and again. How will this all work um, down the road when having oil prices like this just isn't sustainable? Um, There's just no way that we can stay at this price level for too long. I mean, think about all the inflation concerns in the U.S., supply chain, um, snafus, as they're called, or or issues, um, and all kinds of things. And you also have the U.S. government who is trying to cure these problems, right? They're trying to lower gas prices for consumers. Um, all of those things, because again, you know, the U S runs on four year election cycles and we're trying, you know, any administration would try to solve these problems, but it's hard to solve gas prices being high or inflation being high with reducing uh, Russian oil. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that or we should do that. I'm just saying it's very tricky and fine line to walk. So, I wanted to shift gears from all of that because I could probably spend a couple hours going into all of the details about what's going on with oil, what's going on with um, Russia and Ukraine and and all of the rest. But I wanted to shift gears a little bit and talk about a recent deal that I came across. Um, one of my friends actually sent it to me, so I wanted to want to shout him out real quick. His name's Parker Smith, um, and she sent me this deal. Um, we're actually both going to be interning uh, as a summer analyst at Tudor Pickering Holt Co. in Houston this summer, uh, and this is a deal that, that TPH, Tudor Pickering Holt Co. advised on. So the deal that I'm going to talk about is Whiting and Oasis. Um, they had a merge, merger of equals, meaning that companies of similar size that bought um, they bought each other basically, um, and this deal was value, is valued at six billion dollars. Um, With The B, of course, Uh, and these two companies are upstream producers in the Williston Basin, and this basin is in the U.S. It's located in western uh, North Dakota, um, northern-ish South Dakota, eastern Montana, and runs into some parts of Canada as well. Uh, and this basin is right above the Bakken. The Bakken, uh, if you listen to the show for a while, is where I had a lot of, where I did a lot of work for my internship this summer at Conoco, this past summer at Conoco Phillips. Um, the Bakken is also another pretty prolific show play in the U.S. Um, so I think the big reasoning behind this deal is that a lot of quote sweet spot, um, assets are are diminishing in the U.S., meaning that basins where you have a high productivity of the basin, meaning that you pull a lot of oil out for the amount of acres that you have to drill to, right? So you're producing more with less kind of thing. And this is where a lot of drillers want to be because if you could produce more without having to drill as much, you're going to make more money at the end of the day. Your expenses are going to be less and your revenue is going to be more basic uh, accounting equation there. So this specific deal is combining the sweet spots of these companies uh, in the Williston Basin, and they're expected to produce 100, 164,000 to 169,000 barrels of oil equivalent per day. Um, pretty solid timing on this. Um, I know the process for these deals can take some time, but it's really, really solid timing where oil prices are at. Um, these both, these, both of these companies seem like very well run, very, um, good companies. Um, and it's a great time for this deal to be going through, particularly with all of those things that I mentioned earlier. Uh, also, also, like I touched on earlier in all of my other podcasts, um, there's a focus on oil companies having very high quality assets with both, which both of these companies do. Achieving very uh, substantial and sustainable cash flows. Um, these cash flows can be used to either, you know, either or um, produce more oil, reinvest it back into their operations, uh, promote ESG initiatives, invest money there. And also, and it seems to have taken more of an importance, is returning cash to the shareholders, too. So, combining companies that have strong cash flows. As well as a strong balance sheet, something that's very, uh, very good these days, I would say, um, and always, of course. Uh, also, neither, neither of these companies have very big uh, maturities of debt coming soon, meaning that they don't have a lot of debt kind of on the horizon that they're going to have to pay off soon. Um, so that's all that I have for today. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Uh, it was uh, a lot to talk about for sure. Um, it's definitely challenging to whittle down what I want to talk about and what I think can add the most value for for you all. But I really hope that you enjoyed the episode uh, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll we'll there'll be some more uh, news this week. Hopefully it's uh, always good news. we always want good news, right? So hope you have a great week. Um, enjoy the week, and I'll see you next week.